Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com slash balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality. The Moth is a great podcast to hear true stories told by people from all walks of life in front of live audiences. And The Moth is bringing you a very special episode about a galaxy far, far away. In honor of May the 4th, or Star Wars Day, they're going to feature hilarious and heartwarming stories about the way that Star Wars has changed people's worlds. Listen now by searching The Moth on Spotify, Apple, iHeart, or wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to Imaginary Worlds, a show about how we create them and why we suspend our disbelief. I'm Eric Malinsky. In 2015, I interviewed Cliff Chang for an episode about Wonder Woman. Cliff is one of my favorite comic book artists. He draws with simple, heavy graphic lines that convey a lot of emotion. And every panel is perfectly framed to express whatever story he's telling. I interviewed him at a studio, and after we were done, I was packing up my recording equipment, and he showed me artwork that he was working on for a new series called Paper Girls. The image was four girls on bikes in the suburbs. They're wearing 80s clothes, and the sky looked menacing above them, hinting there was something large and powerful out there. I was instantly hooked. Yeah, I remember I remember showing you what we had. Yeah, it, the, the issue hadn't come out yet, but you know, I did have the first issue of inked artwork in the studio, and it's amazing to think you know, how many years ago that was. Paper Girls ran for 30 issues until the story wrapped up in 2019. Not long after that, Amazon Prime bought the rights for a live-action TV adaptation, and the show just debuted. Cliff and his writing partner Brian K. Vaughn are executive producers. Maybe everybody has already been evacuated. That's standard procedure when there's a nuclear attack. No, no, there's a nuclear attack. You think it could be aliens? I'm just saying we don't know. Where's my walkie? But before that could happen, way back in the summer of 2016, when the seventh issue of Paper Girls had just hit comic book stores, a new science fiction show appeared on Netflix that had quite a few similarities to Paper Girls. You know, I I was laughing with Brian because, you know, we thought we were doing something that was out of left field. You know, we've made our peace with it for sure. I think if you watch the show, if, and if you watch Stranger Things, they're very different shows with very different creative goals. One of the differences is that Stranger Things taps into the horror genre, while Paper Girls is more traditionally sci-fi. The girls are jumping around in time from futuristic cities with flying cars to prehistoric times and 
fighting off giant creatures, and they're caught up in a war between these two different time-traveling factions. The main thing that Paper Girls and Stranger Things have in common is that they both feature kids on bikes. In fact, there's a growing recognition among cultural critics that kids on bikes has become a genre. E.T. is the classic kids on bike story, but there's also The Goonies, Stand By Me, Lost Boys, to name just a few that were made in the 80s. And then there are the ones that are set in the 80s, like, of course, Stranger Things, but also Stephen King's It, Super 8, and even the German show Dark, which has kids on bikes going back to the 80s and beyond. I think it's so interesting that this thing, which started out organically without many people noticing, has become a self-aware genre. And I wanted to know, why do so many of these stories about kids on bikes involve supernatural elements? And how come kids on bike stories that are set in the 80s are popular with kids today who didn't grow up in that time? Before we get to that, let's go back to Paper Girls, because it stands out from a lot of the other kids on bike stories in interesting ways. Cliff Chang did not come up with the idea originally. It was pitched to him by his friend, Brian K. Vaughn, who is best known for writing comics like Saga and Why the Last Man. Cliff loved the idea right away, but as an artist... I was nervous about it. I can't run a bicycle. <laughs> you know, it's, it's one of those things, uh, it's like write what you know, and, and sometimes you just want to draw what you know. I can't, I can't run a bike. You know, and drawing kids for issue after issue, you know, these are things that are notoriously difficult for artists. You know, I wasn't sure if I was up to the challenge. At the same time, I knew because of the time period that unless you lived it, it could really easily become a punchline. The other thing that made him want to do the comic was that the protagonists were all girls. You immediately bring in this kind of scrappier outsider status to your heroes. Um, you know, the idea of 12-year-old paper girls, you know, having to hustle down their customers for, you know, their, their newspaper subscriptions, you know, talking to adults, waking up at 4 a.m. That's immediately a, a, a much more independent kind of kid. You know, I, I didn't have a job when I was 12. <laughs> but, you know, to make the story about girls, you start to move away from these stories where young boys have to learn how to be men, you know, and there's a kind of a learned toxic masculinity that's encoded in a lot of that kind of fiction. Adding to their outsider status, one of the characters is Asian, one of them is black, and two of the four girls discover that they're gay. And in developing the series, Cliff had another idea. What if in jumping around through time, the girls meet future versions of themselves? His creative partner, Brian, loved the idea, and that became the heart of the story. The kids and their adult selves feel such a wide range of emotions when they meet each other, from disappointment to exasperation to compassion. When I think back to like when I was 12, I, it's fairly innocent and very directionless, um, you know, which is, is okay. But um, you, know, you do naturally wonder if, if you did all right by that kid, you know, that, that kid who's so full of potential and innocent and, you know, and all the things that have gone that have happened in between you know you wonder if if you held on how much you held on to that person and how much what you might look like to them in drawing the older version of the main character Aaron Cliff decided to model the adult Aaron after his wife and using my wife was the best 
way for me to approach that character with as much love and you know I wanted her to feel believable and I wanted to you know and the best way for me to do that was to yeah kind of put as much of myself in it as possible did you have anything to do with the casting of the show on Amazon because when I saw pictures of the four girls like just their headshots like not even in period costumes I actually said to myself like oh my god because they looked exactly like your drawings I was amazed uh, to see the casting. We were not involved with it at all, uh, but we, you know, they sent us the final reels for the girls, and and we were just awestruck by how well they inhabited, you know, those roles. They look like them, and they sound like them, which is impressive because it's a comic book. So when they spoke, they sounded like the voices that he imagined in his head. Stephanie Folsom is a TV and film writer in Los Angeles, and she developed the Paper Girl streaming show on Amazon. Cliff and Brian were concerned about the fact that there were two men telling a story about girls, so they wanted to make sure that whoever developed the show could relate more personally to the characters, and Stephanie definitely did. My generation never got a coming-of-age story. It was always having to graft my experience onto a boy experience because I feel like most of the stories I got were about girls um, having makeovers in order to get, like, the first date or to be allowed to the party. Like, you know, so if you wanted to just have an adventure and have fun and explore and be a hero, you had to go to, like, the boys' stories, you know? Like, you had to, you know, Stand By Me, Goonies. Like, these kind of things were the stories that, like, I was like, yes, I can relate to that, but there's no one that looks like me. The first season just came out, and it doesn't have the giant scope of the comics, which would have required a Star wars size special effects budget. Instead, the show embraces its smaller scale by focusing in on and expanding the relationship between the girls and between their older selves. So a lot of effort was put into casting the show. Oh, it was insane. Our, our poor casting people. Um, <laughs> they did a nationwide search, even international search. They went through hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of candidates. We saw, you know, professional actors. We saw kids who had done one commercial, kids who had done nothing. Every day, it was like they had to go through like 300 to 500 casting tapes to find those girls. It, it, it was pretty insane. Wow. Did you find all four of them? Did, did, was, it, did, was it a similar journey for all four of them or were any of them harder to cast than others? You know, I, I think that um, the role of Aaron was hard because Aaron, you know, has to speak fluent Mandarin. Like her, she comes from, you know, an, an immigrant family, you know, and that's how she communicates with her mom. And so like, finding a young woman who had the acting chops and was fluent in Mandarin and could could do it was was not no easy task. They found the perfect Erin. She's a young actress named Riley Lai Nillette. The adult version of Erin is played by Ali Wong. And Ali was a huge fan of the comics. You know, and I get it. Like Ali just gets like straight offers and we actually made her audition because we wanted to see how she interacted with the younger version of herself and to make sure that she was viable as like adult Riley, essentially. She killed it. Her audition was absolutely amazing. And just after like watching her interact with Riley, you're like, yeah, they're they're completely the same person. Like I 
completely bought, we all completely bought that like Ali Wong was Riley after seeing them just interact with each other. What is your job? I uh, work in the court system. A lawyer? Paralegal. Yes, a paralegal. What do you want me to say? Yeah, I don't even remember what I wanted to be when I was your age. A U.S. senator and a mother of four. Wow. Well, as you can see, that did not transpire. Paper Girls is often compared to Stranger Things because they both have kids from the 80s. But Stranger Things, even though it's dark in terms of all the horror elements, tends to treat the 80s like the good old days with leg warmers and fun pop songs. Paper Girls takes a darker approach to the 80s. Again, here's Cliff. I think it's important to show that stuff because it also shows what kind of progress has been made to be reminded of how baldly people would announce their homophobia and use uh, slurs. You know, there wasn't even necessarily coded language for a lot of the racism then too. You know, it was a different time and, and we wanted to show that. You can't really say that stuff. It's not, it's not okay, okay? I don't even want to go near what else you probably off my case. No, no, really, how I'm the rich girl with the banks and the champagne and- What's the big deal? Explain to me, what is the big deal? Have you ever heard of the Holocaust? Oh, give me a break. Ask my grandmother about it sometime. I'm sure she really enjoyed it. This isn't Nazi Germany. And yet someone wrote Jew bitch on my locker last year. The whole pitch and the whole idea behind it was that Paper Girls has something that Stranger Things doesn't, which is it's it's anti-nostalgia. The more you go back in time, the less rights you have and less freedom you have. So it kind of doesn't take like a cherry, like, wouldn't it be great to go back in time? It's a little bit more like, oh God, what if I had to go back in time? What would that be? I think we view um, the 80s kind of through the Steven Spielberg lens, and I love Spielberg, so go ahead and view it through that lens all you want. But if you look at the real 80s, there were huge issues. There were civil rights issues going on. There were gender equality issues going on. And besides that, like, you had big world issues. You had the Cold War crisis. I mean, nuclear war was an actual real threat, just as it is today, which is kind of crazy that we're back in that place kids had to deal with a lot. Also, kids were left on their own to figure things out. And even though the main characters leave the 1980s early on in the story, the girls that are queer were raised in a culture that was openly homophobic. Showing where gay rights has been and where it's going and where it's come from and how easy it is to maybe slip back into where it's been, I think is important. And I think it's important we know the history and the fact that such derogatory terms were just thrown around in like everyday use and nobody blinked at it. You know, people don't think of that. And that's not that long ago. And I think it's important to remember that. And also just how brave kids of that era were that came out because it wasn't, it's, and it's still brave coming out, I think, in a lot of places in the world. But, you know, it's not accepted and it's real life and death stakes. Whether a story about the 80s is nostalgic or not, I don't think kids on bike stories that are told today are really about the past. There's a reason why kids on bikes evolved from a plot device to a genre. We'll keep running up that hill after the break.
In trying to explore why kids on bikes became a genre, I wanted to talk with two guys who have given this a lot of thought, John Gilmore and Doug Lewandowski. They created a role-playing game called Kids on Bikes. I just started playing the game recently with a small group, and it's fun. Early on, we could decide whether the tone of our game was dark or light. I wanted our town to be David Lynchian, so it feels more like Blue Velvet than Stranger Things. And John told me that after he and Doug created the game, it still went through a lot of changes after they playtested it. The thing we found immediately in our playtesting was that people adored the world creation. And we really worked hard after those early playtests to make that part of the game shine. Because the more that they enjoyed building the world, the more they enjoyed playing in it. Before you start playing, the players also have to answer questions like, what is the industry your town is known for? Is it still in business? What's your most famous landmark? What's the name of your high school team? I think my favorite question and the one that really made it come to life was asking each player what one of the rumors that they've heard about the town is it's super fun because people are so creative and you know a lot of people will take like a rumor about the town they grew up in and incorporate it into the story and it really personalizes it in a fun way when our group started playing i suggested the idea that the town has secret passages from the underground railroad That's a rumor I used to hear about the very old houses in the Boston suburb that I grew up in. Also, you can choose a character to play from very recognizable archetypes. Like adventurous scout, conspiracy theorist, brilliant mathlete, prom royalty, mysterious transfer, freakazoid, silver spoon, goody-goody, or seasoned babysitter. The character that I came up with is a goth kid who's secretly a nerd. The guy playing my brother decided to go in the opposite direction. He's the star of the football team. But in creating the game, one of the archetypes really stumped John and Doug. Doug and I went back and forth a lot about like including the bully as a trope. And he's like, well, you know, we don't necessarily want to glorify violence. But I was like, yeah, but think about those stories where like in Goonies, you know, the older brother that pitches on him all the time has this really nice redemption arc where you know, he becomes better and, you know, becomes a Dooney himself. And I was like, I think if we, if we remove that, you remove those kind of stories. Doug Lewandowski told me that conversation he had with John about the bully made him think about how they should handle violence in the game mechanics. One of the key things that we did in Kids on Bikes is how vulnerable the characters are. Nobody should walk away like, okay, we tackled each other into an empty pool and, you know, got uh, our leg ripped off by the werewolf, but we're fine tomorrow. That vulnerability and that reliance on the luck of the role, I think is a good way to represent that fragility that comes along with the, the genre. The threat of violence or physical danger is a big part of the kids on bike genre, because growing up, often means not having adults around to protect you. So I think it's this idea that the kids are on their own in some way, either because the adults aren't there or don't believe them. And I think a lot of it is this tension between the smaller settings that are usually there and forces coming in from the outside. You know, in ET, you see that in terms of 
the good force coming in from the outside ET versus the government force coming in that wants to control him and all that sort of stuff. In Goonies, you see this tension of this one kid who's about to move away and sort of moving out into the outside world, but also then the criminals coming into this place that's been there all along. On some level, bikes are just practical. If the kids are too young to get their licenses, then they need bikes to get around. But being on a bike also raises the stakes. There's just an added level of vulnerability that comes along with being on a bike that you're exposed. If somebody swings a bat at you and you're in a car, they might break the window, but you're going to drive away. If somebody swings a bat at you on the bike, you're in a world of hurt. Or if a monster shoots some projectile monster thing at you. Yeah, exactly. Well, why, why do you think that so many kids on bike stories have monsters in them? I think they're a great metaphor. I think the one that does this most overtly is Super 8, which has this alien that represents this loneliness and this isolation that the main character is feeling after the death of his mother. I know bad things happen. But you can still live. You know, there's there's that great scene where he is eye to eye with the monster and has that talk with it about how just because some people are bad and bad things happen doesn't mean everybody's bad. But I think those monsters serve as these these really great ways to show a facet of this problem or this tension. The tension being? The tension being the, depending on the movie, but whatever force is pushing them to grow up or change or not grow up or not change. Another question I had is whether kids on bike stories need to be set in the past. Even though the paper girls jumped from the 1980s to the present, Stephanie Folsom thinks it was important that the girls came from a time period when they weren't used to having smartphones. This is going to sound weird at first, but I almost feel like it kind of taps in the same idea that like a road movie kind of taps into, whereas kind of this idea of freedom of the open road and being able to choose your own way and kind of being a master of your your world in that moment and also being like very clear on like who your identity is and who you are in that moment the second you insert like the smartphone into a story like that then i think the idea of freedom and the wind in your hair and you don't have to answer to anybody suddenly goes away hmm. so do you think the fact that these are this genre now is still really popular do you think there's a kind of nostalgia for that like some people even kids today watching these shows set way back when they still think there's there's kind of like a a fantasy in being able to do that when you can't anymore oh i definitely think so i i think that there's something and i also think there's probably a curiosity factor because i don't know i'm kind of from like the generation that um grew up with like come home before the streets come on and then i was there for the transition with like you're being monitored all the time you know and i I think that if I hadn't had that exposure for that brief moment in time of being like, you can do anything until the streetlights come on, I think it would just seem like I'd be curious about like what that was like, because it would just seem so different than like my current reality. I asked John and Doug about this. John agreed with Stephanie. He thinks it's hard to tell these types of stories today. But Doug disagrees. He mentioned two Kids on Bikes movies that were not set in the past, they were also not set in the suburbs. There was a 2011 film called Attack the Block, where teenagers in South London 
fought off aliens. And then there's a film from 2020 called Vampires vs. the Bronx. The good guys are black kids from the Bronx versus these pale white vampires who want to come in and gentrify their neighborhood. Talk about updating from modern anxieties. I thought it was just spot on. What's poppin', y'all? It's your girl Gloria coming at you live. If you see a kid that's riding a bike two sizes too big for him, that's his little man trying to save the neighborhood. And speaking of saving the neighborhood, what's up with all these missing person flyers? I, I think the more advanced technology gets, the easier it'll be to tell one of those stories. You know, like five years ago, if I saw something and whipped out my camera phone and took a recording of it and posted it online, people would go, oh my God, that's that thing. Whereas now people would look at it and say, oh, it's a deep fake. He, you know, I'm not sure what the video equivalent of Photoshop is, but, you know, did that for this vampire who's attacking this person or or whatever. So be, so the idea that kids are often not believed would actually could potentially even be stronger in this day and age. Right. Oh, those kids, they can stage this in some way. You know, they did cool graphic effects. Kids are so good with technology. Of course, it's that. I think in some ways, as the younger generation gets more and more frustrated with adult inaction on serious issues, the more we're going to see kids on bikes sorts of stories that talk about climate change, that talk about gun violence, that talk about things like that in new ways, in ways that create a metaphor for their concerns, their anxieties around that. Especially when adults are trying to gaslight kids into believing that these dangerous problems aren't a big deal or they can't be solved. But if you can imagine yourself defeating evil time travelers or a demigorgon or mind flayer with just your bikes and whatever else you have at hand, why not take on the real monsters that are closer to home? That is it for this week. Thank you for listening. Special thanks to Cliff Chang, Stephanie Folsom, John Gilmore, and Doug Lewandowski. My assistant producer is Stephanie Billman. You can follow the show on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. By the way, the fall semester of my NYU class, Creating a Narrative Podcast, starts on Tuesday, September 6th. It's an eight-week course, and it's virtual. You can learn more at NYU's School of Professional Studies website. If you really like Imaginary Worlds, please leave a review wherever you get your podcasts or a shout out on social media. It always helps people discover the show. And if you'd like to advertise on Imaginary Worlds, let us know at contact at imaginaryworldspodcast.org and we'll put you in touch with our ad coordinator. The best way to support the show is to donate on Patreon. At different levels, you get either free Imaginary World stickers, a mug, a t-shirt, and a link to a Dropbox account which has the full-length interviews of every guest in every episode. You can learn more at imaginaryworldspodcast.org. Welcome to a journey into the heart of the Texas Renaissance Festival, the nation's largest and rowdiest celebration of medieval fantasy. But what lurks beneath the facade of tights and turkey legs? Well, we dove deep into the empire to uncover a history marred by mystery and misconduct, murders, assaults, and other crimes that tarnish its legacy. This isn't just a fairy tale, it's a cautionary tale of power, fantasy, and the consequences that follow when they all collide. Search for Crime Waves Renaissance Texas on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening now. 
In the 1970s, John Todd burst onto the evangelical scene with a shocking tale. He claimed to be a former witch involved in a then unheard of secret organization called the Illuminati and urged Christians to prepare for a violent world takeover. First of all, the number one weapon in everybody's home should be a 12-gauge pump shotgun. Hear the amazing story of one of the originators of the modern-day conspiracy theory. From Magnificent Noise and Sony Music Entertainment, this is Cover Up, The Conspiracy Tapes. <laughs> 